NOLA History Guy podcast for Saturday, May 16th, 2020. Welcome to the pod. We've got some uh, fun stuff for you today. A bit of a change of plans from what we talked about from the last pod. We left off where we were talking. Uh, we were doing the Riverfront Streetcar and we'd done part one. And uh, we've uh, we've lined up a couple of interviews in the meantime that are, are much more interesting listening to me ramble about streetcars. So we're going to push back part two for a little bit. Uh, and we're going to, today we're going to present uh, the first part of our interview with Katie Shannon, and then uh, who is a uh, uh, local historian, has worked at uh, Whitney, Laura, and Evergreen Plantations, and has a new book out. And uh, and then uh, after we do Katie, we uh, also interviewed Ryan Bordenave of the Downtown Development District for uh, a whole bunch of Canal Street stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, of course, we're going to do our pick of the week from uh, today in New Orleans history and uh, in, in all of these pods. And trust me, we'll get back to the streetcars. Don't worry. You know, we, we will. Uh, just a whole bunch of interesting things there. But, the, you know, we're kind of all locked down a little bit. And so we've got some zooming we did. and We'll present that for a little bit. So uh, buckle up, grab a cup of coffee, grab a glass of wine. And here we go. And our pick of the week for Today in New Orleans History or NewOrleansPast.com by Catherine Campanella uh, of the, the cool stuff. And this was a little bit tough, but I, I, I chose this one because of a future guest that we're uh, future pod that we're going to have. And that's with uh, Ryan Bordenay from the Downtown Development District. And uh, it, anyway, the, the, uh, the, the pick for this week is May 13th, 1966. Agreement reached between International Trade Mart and City to build new structure at the foot of Canal Street. And the new structure they're referring to, of course, is the International Trade Mart building. Now, the, the International Trade Mart, or the ITM, was an entity, it was a nonprofit organization that uh, goes back to actually 1945. Uh, there was uh, International House. And then the International Trade Mart, uh, which uh, it was chartered in 1945, and well, you know, post-war everything as that goes. Uh, the one of the challenges there uh, was getting started, and they they actually got rolling and started in 1948. And uh, the both organizations. Uh, were uh, their their charter their you know their missions were to promote international trade and commerce in New Orleans. There was International House and then the ITM, and ITM uh, had their first building on Camp and Common Street, and they were they were yeah, they were kind of outgrowing it and the. The city was looking to, but you know, by by the '60s, the city was looking to uh, make some changes, make some growth. In particular, uh, Mayor Shep Morrison was very much interested in promoting New Orleans as an international gateway, a gateway to Central America, a gateway to South America, that kind of thing. So uh, we see 
in 66, basically, the uh, Trademart is looking to move away from the older building at Camp and Common and go someplace really splashy. And you can't get splashier in New Orleans than the foot of Canal Street, right? You know, we've got uh, one canal place in the shopping center, and then on the other side of the street is two canal place, which is the International Trademark Building, which we now call the World Trade Center Building, and I, I well, anyway, so I, it's you know you, you say oh, it's newsworthy about deciding to do this, and it, it it's really more because the the history of the building is just so fascinating, and the fact that in in talking with Ryan from the DDD, uh, uh, Ryan, uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about is some of the stuff in one of uh, his latest presentations about the downtown development district and the things that are happening both on Canal Street and in the CBD in general. And one of the things in there that caught me was an artist rendering of the completed Four Seasons Hotel, looking at it from the riverfront and looking up. And we'll put that photo on the show page, but it really, it's an impressive rendering. And the, the Four Seasons Hotel in general is just a wonderful thing because the building wasn't demolished, you know, so we have that. So uh, the, the, the backstory here, of course, the, the, the uh, International Trademark uh, building, be, uh, the agreement is, May thir- uh, is signed on May 13th, 1966. Now that's when, that's Skiro at the time. That's not, that's not Moon Landrew yet. Um, Landrew is, Landrew doesn't become mayor uh, for uh, basically for uh, ah, gosh another five years at that point so um, so moon is I mean uh, rather uh, Vic Skiro is still mayor now you know the back on that of course is that um, Skiro becomes mayor in 1962 when Shep Moore oh, actually uh, yes 62 when uh, Shep Morrison accepts position as ambassador to the OAS, to the Organization of American States, which is a Central and South American uh, regional uh, country organization uh, that merited an ambassador. So JFK appoints Morrison to that job. And uh, the city council basically has to choose one of their number to replace him because there's no vice mayor like vice president right so the city council uh chooses vic skiro uh and uh one of the there was a uh john churchill chase cartoon at the time uh chase did for the state's item where it was like you know it's the i just elected a mayor unanimously was the little man's thing and yeah you know, it was kind of cool from uh you know for for uh, skiro so skiro starts so this is skiro's second term then uh, basically, you know, he, he's up for re-election. No, it's his first term. Take that. Well, yeah, it's it's his it's his first it's his second. Sixty-seven to seventy-one. It's his first term. Okay, so it's yeah, it's the uh, it's his his first actual term as mayor. So he um, so the development in general of stuff downtown. You know, the the streetcar has the the streetcar's gone by sixty-four. There's uh, a lot of things, you know, plans and ideas uh, to redo Eads Plaza, to do, you know, build a convention center, which eventually becomes the Rivergate. And then this proposal to build a uh, 30-story, I believe it's 33-story building 
that becomes the international trademark. Now, the, the trademark itself, of course, is an office building, well, now the World Trade Center, and uh, that's where uh, basically a lot of, when you get like consulates and uh, international companies are encouraged to open up an office in a, uh, a, a, a combined environment like this, you know, when it's... Uh, that that kind of move so the itm building uh you know the itm acquires the the property and they build the building at two canal and uh so it opens in 1968 with a really nice dedication and everything else and just goes into business and so that's the idea is that this is a place where people can do business and one of the things in addition to that in terms of not just being an office building and uh, international, uh, in, you know, having, you know, a, 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 a nexus for international trade and commerce, but uh, the, there's a bit of entertainment there, too. In particular, there was the, uh, the lounge at the top of the building that it was known as the top of the mart and uh, kind of a play on the top of the mark from uh, out in San Francisco. Uh, but the uh, so the top of the mart was actually was interesting was a uh, was a revolving bar you know revolving cocktail lounge you know not the whole thing mind you you could sit in a you could sit at a table or a booth that didn't turn but the outside piece would uh, revolve so that basically it would go full circle around the top of the building in an hour. And so it was kind of it, it was it, it was neat. If you've been in a revolving bar, you know that kind of thing, uh, you, you you know you you get the feel. It's a it's a fun thing. Uh, it's over time the top of the mart closed. Uh, uh, the top of the mart closed. Uh, the, the Plimsoll Club moved into uh, the the what is now the World Trade Center moved into the building, and there was so there's a, a private club and a restaurant and, and entertainment stuff a floor below the top of the mart, but the 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 bar itself has been closed. I don't know if the Four Seasons plans to. I'm sure they plan to do something up there again. What I don't know is if they're going to uh, if they're going to bring back the revolving uh, the, the the revolving bar room up at the top. Uh, to my knowledge, and you guys, when you when you hear this, correct me if I'm wrong. But to my knowledge, there have been three revolving bars in downtown New Orleans, or revolving lounges, I guess is the way to say it. Uh, there was the, uh, the uh, of course, the Carousel Bar in the Montleon, but that's on the ground floor. That's on the first floor, so it's not a magnificent view. It's the Carousel Bar, and you drink and spin, and you know, hopefully the spin gets you more of a buzz. Uh, the other one, of course, was at the Hyatt Hotel uh, on, um, on Loyola, uh, right there by the Superdome. And uh, the top of the Hyatt was, for a long time, a uh, revolving lounge as well. And that's the that those two in the top of the Mart are the only ones I can think of that were uh, that were revol revolving bars in uh, New Orleans. And correct me, you guys again, correct me if I'm wrong. So 66, May 13th, 1966, the uh, the city agrees with the ITM. To build the uh, to build uh, the World Trade Center, the uh, uh, not the world, well the, the International Trade Mart at the time. The ITM sells their building at Camp and Common. That building is actually later demolished. That corner has gone through so many changes. That's basically the back of the Sheraton Hotel on one side, and then the parking garage for the Sheraton on the 
on, on, you know, on the further uptown side of Commons. So, you know, that, that, that area has undergone a good bit of change. Uh, Campanella puts the, uh, a postcard uh, of the original ITM building on her page for uh, today in New Orleans history for this entry. So we'll put that up on our show page. She also puts up just, you know, as, as, as you just can't get away from some of this stuff. Uh, the, there's, there's weird JFK connections, of course, to the ITM. Uh, the first of which is a photo that she's got on on her page, and I'm going to put a link because I want you to go to her. I want you to support this project, you know, this 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 work of hers. Uh, she's got this great photo of of all people, Lee Oswald. Okay, Lee Harvey Oswald, a, a, you know, uh, a, a alleged assassin. I'm not totally. I am not a lone gunman. Let's just say that. Uh, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, this picture of Oswald. Pan, uh, passing out pamphlets in support of Cuba. Uh, and I believe this is like 62. Uh, no, uh, fair play literature, a uh, fair play for Cuba literature at the old international trademark on August 16th, 1963. So you see how cl- August, November, you know, and the other thing about this, which is where it starts getting, you know, this is conspiracy theory weird, but it's fun conspiracy theory kind of weird in the sense of, you know, the, the all of the connections. Um, one of the one of the players in the international trademark for a long time was a gentleman named Clay Shaw, and you might know the name if you're either of an age or you've followed the uh, you you've followed the whole concept uh, or followed some of the, the background of the J of the Kennedy assassination. But um, Clay Shaw was a businessman in New Orleans. And uh, when the, the ITM, when the international trademark was, was founded, he was one of the founding members. He was one of the charter members and one of the movers of the whole thing. Uh, he ran the place, uh, from 1940, well, ran the ran ITM, uh, or what? Well, I didn't say he ran it completely, but he was he was a managing director of the ITM from 1947 until he retired in 1965. So that puts 1963 in this trademark window, and so people are like, Oswald is passing out protest literature at the ITM upstairs. Is 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 Clay Shaw? And if you're Jim Garrison, who was the district attorney at the time, somehow you put all of this together, and that's how he ended up her, uh, uh, basically just, just hounding Clay Shaw uh, for years over his conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I say, it's neat stuff, right? So uh, if you look, again, the, the, the big thing now about the trademark is it's just been there for ages and ages. It's been a, you know, you, there's just been companies uh, that have had offices there for ages. Uh, in 1985, the uh, International House agrees to merge. International House New Orleans agrees to merge with the International Trademark New Orleans. And they form a merged organization that that becomes World Trade Center New Orleans. And there is an association of World Trade Centers. So uh, the World Trade Center New Orleans joins the World Trade Center Association. And, uh, of course, World Trade Center gets that 
is forever, obviously, you know, uh, indelibly imprinted with the attack on, on September 11th, 2001. But we still maintain the name uh, of the World Trade Center, and it's still a functioning unit, uh, a functioning entity. But, of course, what happened was is that the, um, the World Trade Center gave back the building to the city of New Orleans and the city of New Orleans really just didn't know what to do with the ITM building. So going back a few years now, uh, they started taking proposals on, you know, the obvious thing to do with a 33-story building was either A, demolish it and build a new thing at that point, or B, maintain the building, renovate it, and turn it into something else. And the something else, you know, the most obvious and likely something else would be a hotel. And that's the proposal that the city accepted was the Four Seasons' uh, proposal. So the building was renovated, developed, and it's nearing completion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, it's a you know, big period now for about a, almost a year where the Riverfront streetcar couldn't go uh, past Canal Street because of the construction work and everything. So that, that project is coming to, to fruition. And the building that is becoming the Four Seasons Hotel started its journey on May 13th, 1966. So that's our pick for this week. Uh, the uh, Ms. Campanella's website is uh, neworleanspast.com, all one word, neworleanspast.com. And if you go to her Facebook page for this, it's Today in New Orleans History. And we'll put up a couple of shots, a couple of things relating to this on our show page for today. And uh, particularly this gorgeous rendering of what the finished product Four Seasons is. Uh, yeah, you know, Ryan and the DDD had, you know, obviously, you know, had a role in all of that. And they're, they're quite pleased with how things are coming along with that. So, yeah, that's our pick of the week. And so we'll take a break and then we're going to have our interview with Ms. Katie Shannon. NOLA History Guy podcast is brought to you today by Elysian Fields Press publishers of Trusted Talents, book two of the Bayou Talents series by Edward Branley. Someone stealing magical artifacts in the middle of Mardi Gras. The priests of the Ordo Archangeli keep their tools hidden until needed. New Orleans has kept some of their secrets well until now. Daniel McCain is a dark adept of the same group that tried to kill Ren Alciator at Sawan. Now McCain comes close to acquiring a powerful set of tools. When all are in his possession, challenging and defeating him will cost lives. And there's no better time to hide these thefts than Carnival. The Ordo don't know where the thieves' next target is. Wren wants to enlist the help of one of McCain's cousins, Brooks Sterling Sumner, to learn more about the artifacts. Renard Alciator's talents are no longer hidden. Will the shadowy group known as the Assembly trust him? With the guidance of a coven of witches and knowledge from his new friend, Ren and the Assembly must protect their city from those who want to win at all costs. Bullets and magic are a strong combination to defeat. Trusted Talents is the second book in the Bayou Talents series. It's available on uh, Amazon.com uh, uh, as, uh, as a Kindle book, 
and in paperback, either signed by the author from the Alicia Fields Press website or in local bookstores around New Orleans. So again, that's Trusted Talents. And if you'd like to order it, go to ElysianFieldsPress.com. That's ElysianFieldsPress, all one word, dot com. So I'd like to introduce you to a fascinating individual, Katie Morlach-Shannon, who, uh, Katie is, uh, is an historian. She is, uh, well, she, we, you'll see, we, we talk about her background and everything, but the big thing is I met Katie when she married her husband, Rob, who I knew before they got married. And, uh, and so yeah, I get to know Katie on Facebook and that kind of thing. And, and I learned that, you know, well, obviously very quickly that she was at the time, the historian for Laura Plantation up the river. Now we're going to talk about that in the second part of this interview but the first part and uh, the main reason we're here and actually uh you know the the the, the impetus for for getting her to come out and, and and well not come out but come on the pod is her new book which is entitled the new orleans b that's b-e-e the new orleans b dispatches from the first year of louisiana's longest running french language newspaper so it's a book about uh, La Belle, the Bee, which was a this uh, French, obviously French language newspaper for Creole New Orleans that started in 1827 and continued, you know, that first year continues on into 1828, and it's a it's a fascinating thing. Now I'm, we're going to put some information about La Belle and the Bee in on the show page because I've always found that I've always found the Bee to be uh, a challenge. Because it's well, it's written in French, and I was I didn't study French, so um, that you can get a lot of the editions of the B. Uh, you know, they're the the usual kind of uh, uh, digitized microfilm kind of thing. Uh, from in particular from the Jefferson Parish Public Library, they have a pretty good collection of of scans of uh, you know of PDFs of old uh, editions of the B. Uh, the problem, of course, is, well, they're still in French, even if they're digitized, right? So what Katie has done, and it's a wonderful thing for me, is she has curated entries or, or artic news articles from that first year of its publication. Now, you know, like a lot, like every newspaper, well, even to this day in, in, uh, in many cases, there's a lot of stuff like, you know, the business section. And in 18, in the 1820s and 1830s, the business section had a great deal to do with shipping and, uh, and commerce related to the port of New Orleans. And that, keeps going on all the way through everything, you know, and you don't need to be, you don't need to translate and republish all of the shipping tables and the commerce tables and everything. So what Katie's done is curate some fascinating articles from that first year of the B and assembled them into the book. Now the book is a, uh, is a Kindle book. It's an EPUB at the moment. And, uh, I know I've bugged her about, you know, you got to turn this into a hard copy because there's people who are just going to love these articles. If you have, if you're able to download and read Kindle, if you can get the Kindle app for your, for your phone, for your, uh, for your uh, tablet 
uh, or for uh, for your computer, you definitely want to do this. She's also got it as Kindle Unlimited. So if you pay Amazon for that service, it's part, it's included in uh, in that service. So you can basically read it for free at that point. Uh, the Kindle book itself is $7.99, and we'll put the reference to that, obviously, on the show page. So uh, as... Uh, me saying French. Without further ado, let's talk to Katie Shannon. Okay, and we're here with author, historian, and scholar Katie Shannon, who has worked at a number of different uh, different places, uh, doing a whole bunch of really good work and research on plantations in New Orleans and New Orleans history. And she has a book, which, hang on, let me get, I have to get back to the title because I'm on Tuesday, October 27th, 1827. So uh, bear with me a moment while I go back to the beginning. And there we go. The New Orleans Bee dispatches from the first year of Louisiana's longest running French newspaper. Edited and compiled by Katie Morley Shannon. And uh, so this is, yeah, so that's Katie's first book, and we're here to talk about that today. So hi, Katie. Thanks for, for coming on NOLA History Guy Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so like, I, like, I, like we were saying before we, we started recording and everything, your, your book tour begins here. So uh, tell us, first off, uh, who you are and how you got to be a historian to the point that you're writing about a newspaper in New Orleans in the 1820s. So um, my name is Katie Morlos Shannon. Um, I am Creole. The, don't let the Shannon fool you. The Irish is my husband. Um, and my family can be traced back to the founding of New Orleans to 1718 when they arrived. And I just was always fascinated with with stories, just the stories of people's lives and my ancestors and just sitting, listening to my grandparents talk about their lives. So from an early age, I wanted to know about how things were in the past and what life was like long ago. And it was also a means of connecting with my grandparents. And then my fascination with genealogy and my own ancestry in the early days of the computer kind of took off. So I was a teenager, like, you know, on the little old, you know, gen web sites googling about what was your first computer oh it was a mac it was a really really big mac (laughs) i don't remember specifically but um yeah so i was you know they were people were out doing fun things on on a friday night and i was looking up records from st landry parish in the 1800s and and that seemed perfectly normal to me but um i went to, I I got my BA in English at LSU and my professor there, I I really specialized in Southern lit at the time. And she said, you know, you really focus on the history that's present in these works. I think that you would be really great at being a historian or doing something in that capacity. And I really, I hadn't thought about that before. I'd always loved history. Um, So I decided kind of on a whim to apply for grad school. It was either that or go to law school, wasn't sure. So I decided to go to grad school in history at LSU. They had a great program and always knew I wanted to specialize in Louisiana. Um, And so I I wrote my master's thesis on Creole women, plantation owners, inspired by a visit to Laura Plantation. But what I always really was passionate about was um, stories of the enslaved. And that kind of stems back with my own family because I knew that 
um, my grandfather, his family had owned a plantation. Now, these were small scale plantations. These were not O'Galley, you know, but still just that. You know, hang on. That, that's an important point because people go to, they go to Oak Alley and they, you know, they, they do the day trip, right? And they go to some of the more, the, the, the grand yeah. houses and everything. And then, and then you go to a place like Laura and you're like, man, is this low rent? You know, or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like compared to Oak Alley, right? You know, and, and they don't understand that most plantations were not massive, you yeah, know, gone with the wind, Tara kind of. Right. You know, right. They were working farms. Yeah, so, they were agricultural right. centers. Um, and I have, I, my, my ancestors had plantations um, near Laura, like on the West Bank of St. James and St. John, and then also out in St. Landry Parish. And we had taken a family trip when I was in eighth grade to um, Washington, D.C., and we went to Mount Vernon. And uh, the historical reenactor that was George Washington came out. And my grandfather, who was very Southern, greeted him with, um, you know, hello, general. And he, he had, my grandfather has a wonderful Southern accent, and he greeted him back with hello, colonel. And they, they had a mutual respect for oh, each other. And very so awesome. Yeah. We were discussing this, he said, well, my, my, gra my granddaddy had a plantation with this many people living on it. And my mom was kind of like, like shut it down. Because there's my mother is very much we do not glorify the old South myth and the lost cause and all of that. So, but I wanted to know more, and it kind of planted that seed and wanting to find that interconnected history. Because for me, it was never just about my white, you know, European uh, plantation owning ancestors or just the enslaved. It was about the interconnection between the two and um, that that dynamic. And the conflict, but also the bonds, that that kind of thing. So that's what inspired me um, to just, I think, to do what I do. And then, of course, New Orleans was always my my dream was to live in New Orleans in an old home. And I would stand on the Mandible Lakefront and look out over Lake Pontchartrain, and I could see the city. And it was I, I needed to get there. So, ironically, I'm back in Mandible I, now, raising a family. I was going to say, and now you guys are on the North Shore, but yeah, it's okay. You know, so that's like, a little bit about worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and that's perfect. Okay, so um, so your your research takes you to was was your your was your job at Laura Plantation the first history related job well, you had or actually so Laura had that unfortunate horrible fire and it just broke my heart. So my grad school friend and I reached out to them and said, "Is there any way that we can help?" So we went over there when we were in grad school and volunteered everything from cleaning clocks to laying bricks to sorting through oh, photographs. And mm -hmm. It was a wonderful way to kind of first get into history and into public history and kind of see firsthand. And they connected me with um, John Cummings of Whitney. Um, Okay. Whom I also knew through another, through a few other family connections, and he was in the early phases of developing Whitney. And I did right. research, the the first research, um, and I worked some with with Ibrahim Sack, and I I did the early research for Whitney Plantation. So, okay. for example, the wall of with all the slave children's names uh, that that died in St. John the Baptist Parish. That that was me. Yeah. Um, oh, I sat okay. at the Archdiocese of New Orleans archives one summer and literally wrote down all of their names. And that was an experience. But um, 
So that was my first gig and I was there for about three years. And then, um, San Marmion of Laura approached me and she said she wanted to do more on the enslaved community and to really focus on that. And they were finally, you know, they were recovered from the fire and from the hurricane. And so we set to work with that and develop an exhibit. Yeah, because I, uh, I did, this is, this is way back. Do you remember, I mean, I obviously remember the, the movie interview with a vampire. And yes. I was working, I did some computer work for Oak Alley at the time they were negotiating okay. the contract for the film, you know, the, the use of the, of the house mm-hmm. for the film. So uh, just to give you a time frame on when that was. And so I would come up the... I would come up River Road, come up, we'll come up, what is it, 3132, whatever it is, you know, 3127. I would come back up that way to get to Oak Alley, right? Which means I would pass Laura all the time. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, and I'm like, hey, this is a cool little place, you know, that kind of thing. But I was going to do computer work at the time, so I didn't really have time to stop or anything. But, um, but anyway, you kind of get the idea there that, you know, so, uh, well, anyway, so yeah. Okay. So you started, yeah, I guess it's no surprise that you started with Whitney because Whitney has, well, let's, let's be frank, right. They've got the big bucks, right. But you know, they're, they're well, maybe the polite thing to say there is they are well-funded, right. They are. And they have a good mission. Um, So I, I really, wanted to help with that and and you you know give them my services and 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 help establish that um but so actually the story of the of this book the new orleans bee and la bella um occurred during the time period in which i was working for whitney and katrina had happened Okay. okay and um it's kind of ironic because now i came back to it during this other crisis and and this these records came during the aftermath of our first really horrible crisis, Katrina. And I, there were only so many places open in which you could do research. And I needed to be able to go out and do research and do my job. And so I went to the HNOC, which opened back relatively early compared to some of the other places. The New Orleans Public Library was the first, and I was there a lot too. So I sat down with the microfilm machine and I just said, you know what? I'm going to go through the B and um, I'm going to go through starting from the beginning and I'm going to do it for at least a year. And I'm just going to write down everything about um, African-Americans, the enslaved um, Creoles or anything that I found really relevant to the history of that time and place. Now there's a lot that's left out like shipping news or they were very big on news from Europe at that time of course, um, and, and what was going on in France and Napoleon. Okay, and hang on. Now let's, let's take a step back because I don't know. Uh, uh, tell everybody about the bee and its place in, it, it's like we're, right. we're, we're talking about the bee like we're assuming everybody knows, but this sure. is the French, this is the French language, this is the Francophone newspaper at a time when we had the cane talks and all of that, right? Yes. You know, we had the we had the Anglo Irish who weren't exactly there. There are the people in the quarter and and in the Treme that really don't think that the people that came with Jackson were very civilized, right? No. And then you got the I right, and then you got the Irish on top of that, and 
there are, that all goes to hell, right? So, I can say that because, yeah. So yeah. we were yeah, my parents, yeah. getting to see the cultural divide and the B was part of that cultural divide and part of really delineating the, the places both publicly and culturally as a separation. So it was the first, it wasn't the first French language newspaper, but it was the longest running. Um, it was founded in 1827, September 1827 by Francois de Lop, and it emerged from another newspaper called La Mai de Um And from there, it was the, it became the longest running French language newspaper in New Orleans over the course of, you know, almost a hundred years. It was, it was, it got very close to a hundred years. So New Orleans had many French language newspapers, about a hundred over a 200 year period, but the B was like the grand dame and it was what stuck and it was what people read. And if you were part of the Creole elite, that was what you would find in, in your home. And it started, the headquarters were on charter, it, it first initially opened up on St. Peter, but quickly moved to Charter Street. And Charter Street at that time was like the headquarters of all the merchants and the attorneys and what was going on in the city. And so they were right in the midst of it all, which is where you want to be if you're a journalist. And they're off. Right, yeah, because it was, yeah. yeah, Charters was far back enough from the river that you weren't warehouse mm -hmm. space or that, that makes perfect. Okay. Question for you uh, about that though. Uh, you said it's St. Peter between uh, Charters and Royal or Royal and Bourbon. Who's the oh. first office? I got, I would have to go check my notes. Um, okay. Hang on. I can, I can, um, I'm close. I'm close in the, in the, in the book. Okay. Um, Okay, you don't. Okay, that's a, and it's okay to not know this because okay. what I was what I was you know, it's okay to not know this off the top of your head. It's not a big deal. Okay. But what I was going for here was when I saw it was on St. Peter. Mm -hmm. I've been doing a couple of things for a couple of folks looking original. Okay, between Royal and Bourbon. Okay. Okay. Because St. Peter Street between Royal and Bourbon is Pat O'Brien's. Yeah, that is. That is, that is <laughs> I've been in the right. and so now I'm curious. <laughs> I'm I'm very curious about building and that you know because I get to be that guy you know where it's like and I'm I was doing something I went down a rabbit hole over the weekend looking up a building for for mm -hmm. a friend you know so anyway okay all right so with the H and O C got to use the die ball um, oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah but the, the the die ball and the Robinson Atlas are you know, oh those are excellent you know. but I think they were there so briefly. Um, Charter Street, okay. and you can still, like, they really were um, centered on Charter Street. That was, and they, it was the newspaper gotcha. at this time. And, like, as, as Richard Campanella said, it's naturally that would become the newspaper row for Creoles because at the time the city was still very much culturally Creole, um, spoke right. French, and that would be the center of it for that part of town. Um, and then newspaper row down the road, moved to Camp Street once right. things became more Americanized and Anglicized. Right. But the B was always on charters until the very end, okay. which was the heart gotcha. of the border, which made sense yeah. with the real population. It, it really does. Yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect in that respect. Um, okay. And the, yeah, I, I think at some point uh, when you, when you get there, cause you've got to write more of this 
I don't know how much I don't know how much notes you took when you were doing all of this. Okay, but when, uh, again, it's like I'm looking at things like because I've got a writing project that's set in it's a fiction fiction idea that's set in 1861 in New Orleans, uh-huh. and you know the fact that you're the fact that you're yeah you, it's like you're talking. You know, you, you've only got one parody. The Civil War is Civil, Civil War bad. You know, I got you. You know, it's not a problem because the focus of this is the focus of this is 1827, right? right? But yeah, I, I'm going to beg you to keep going in okay. like 1861. You and, know, and but yeah, well, that's that's well, another. Yeah. Bring up, uh-huh. what, you, what you're bringing up is a good point, which is the accessibility of the B. The B is one of right. the few newspapers that remains rather inaccessible to people. Genealogybank.com and newspapers.com have digitized a little bit of it, but not much. And uh, Jefferson Parish has it on their library website, but it's kind of cumbersome to go through that way. Cumbersome is not the word. <laughs> and, but, and, but of course, the big obstacle is the language. That's now, what I was getting to, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, okay, first off, Say it's La Bella. La Bella. Say La Bella. Okay, because it's a double L. Okay. Remember, I, I took German, so my French is off. Right, right. You know, it's like, well, so, the yeah. irony is my La mother Bella. always said, okay. take Spanish, take Spanish. I took French four years and then three in college. It actually worked out for me because career wise, I need to be able to read French. And that is one of yes. the benefits. That makes paper. perfect sense. You know, it's like I have a I have a, a, a fraternity friend and fraternity brother for years and years and years who is an attorney mm-hmm. and he gets more out of the French he studied than the Spanish yeah. that he picked up. But yeah, it's the same. Because of our yeah, legal you know, system. Like, yeah. And yeah. so uh-huh. if yeah. you, you go to the notarial archives and you see those people who you know they're more educated than you and they're going through all those books and everything and they have just those sad oh, looks on their face because yeah, it's right. like they're like they're in the in you know like they're in in the galley ship rowing you know because they're just every day they're digging up all of those deeds and titles and and you know they're yeah. smarter than anybody else in the city because they can speak <laughs> French and read that stuff you know so okay so oh, no. um, those are some of my buddies okay back to Jeff um, yeah back to Jefferson Parish you're right that the the B is a Online, it's in terms of digitized, the B is a mess, right? We, yeah, it's, it's stipulate that, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. So it makes sense that you would sit there and basically transcribe stuff that caught your eye. And I did it off so, of my film while sitting at the HNOC. You can also do it at the New Orleans Public Library. At the public um, library, right. Right. But that's the only way to really do it. And it's yeah. not indexed very well. And... It's the it's the only way. And you gotta then, go grab a spool and start reading, huh? Exactly. That's all. You, that's it. You just wait in, and okay. then some of it. So so initially it was only published in French, but then they quickly moved to um, an English section as well. And ironically, though, um, the English section would sometimes not include the same things as the French section because the English re- readers were interested in different things than the French readers okay. and even the wording of it. Now, I do not pretend to be the absolute most fluent person in French who ever lived, but I can read French, okay? Uh, Have to, and have done it for a while. So the interesting thing is when you compare an article that was written in French to an article, the, the same account in English, 
So like I was looking at it and there's one section where they talk about um, in French, one of the one of the articles I transcribed and included in the book where they say um, in the French, oh, you know, he was contained. They were talking about a criminal who was running away and they, they contained him and they brought him to the jail. And if you read the English version, it was they hit him over the head with a brick and then arrested him. So, you know, it's just those beautiful yeah. little nuances. <laughs> it, yeah, that make, yeah, somehow that just doesn't surprise. Well, that's the whole thing of French is the yeah. language of diplomacy. So you find yes. polite synonyms for beating the hell out of a criminal, right? That's right. Yeah. The, the English were always rougher in, in every way. <laughs> Um, okay, so so at this so was the paper when when the paper started in 1827 was it a daily or a so it wasn't it was, it was not a daily it was a yet. daily and that it not came, a daily yet okay how many how often three times a week but very quickly okay. it became like within a few years they went to um, um, daily and so if you think about the 30s and the 40s. And the 50s those were kind of the heyday for the bee um and and that was when it was really thriving and people were reading it unfortunately those are the years that are really inaccessible because they're not even available on genealogy bank or, or newspapers.com mm. or anything um but if you, you really have to go to the library you have to yeah. you have to sit down and do that hard work of the real like archival research yeah. that you know we're not used to anymore because uh -huh. we're spoiled because we can turn on our computer. But um, so it's unfortunate because so much of the city's news, while covered by the Daily Picayune, and the Daily Picayune is a great resource, there's this whole segment of the population, the French Creoles, that are not as covered or featured in their pages. And for example, obituaries, just when Creoles died, they put their obituaries in the bee. It was what they did. So if you're searching for an obituary. But also, when you say they put it in the B, but possibly not putting it in the Crescent, the Daily Crescent or the Daily Picayune at that point, just in the B? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because that's what, right, because right, if you, well. Family members. That's the what the community. Read. They, they were Right, and that's family. how you know, yeah, that's the people you know that you want them at the funeral. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Makes, makes right. Sense. Yeah. So, I, I get this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a very big cultural divide. But then after the Civil War, and of course, like you said, you know, seem, seemingly glossing over the Civil War, but, but it brought major changes and Americanization became almost complete after that. And in addition to just Amer other Americans coming in from the North, you had immigrant populations coming in and they were going to be speaking English. So everything turned towards English. And in 1872, um, Labaya said no more to their English column and uh, to the English sec section and just stuck with French because they knew who their readers were. Eventually, a little bit more of English was reincorporated. But at that point, it was solidly the Creole French newspaper. And it, it did OK until about the 1890s. And things started to kind of um, go down by then. But the real, real death knell for uh, the bee was in 1914 when the state legislature said that um, you no longer had to publish legal notices 
and legal documents in French and English. French. Now it was only in English. in English. That was what had kept the paper afloat because they were publishing the funding. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, the, the money, the advertisement, uh, they got yeah. money from mm -hmm. the state to publish these legal documents. And okay. from the time of the Louisiana purchase up until 1914, all legal documents in Louisiana were published in both French and English so that they were accessible to the entire population. And gotcha. by 1914, that wasn't happening anymore. And it really was reflective of what was going on. So the bees demise kind of reflects what was going on just across town in the cathedral. The last mass in French was set in 1910. They no longer wrote um, the, the sacramental records in French starting in 1910. And so the readership changed. And in fact, it became rather déclassé to be only doing things in French. Because ah, okay. mm -hmm. the, the elite at that time started to send their children, they, they wanted their children to speak English. English was the business, uh, was the language of commerce and business. Um, and then by 1920, the, the Picayune bought out the bee in 1921. And then by 1923, it was effectively, it was, it was done. It was over. So that's a, mm -hmm. a bit of its history. Gotcha. Yeah. I, 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 when I when I read in, the, in in your preface in the book when it's talking about I I kind of smirked at the idea of the picky because the picayune is like Pac-Man, you know, throughout New Orleans history, right? You know, I mean, you know, the 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 Daily Picayune absorbs the Times Democrat, and then it becomes the Times Picayune. And then there's the New Orleans states and the New Orleans item merge. And then the Picayune Pac-Man's the afternoon paper into it. And then the irony now is that the advocate absorbed uh -huh. the Picayune. But if you look at the masthead of the, of the paper, it's even this guy knows that the pick, you gotta, you know, yeah. the, the, the Picayune, you know, like nobody wants to read the advocate. Yeah, no. and it, it seemed to me also in deciding to put this book out there that it was in terms of what's going on in journalism right now in our, our city, it was just an interesting thing to talk about, to dialogue about, and to look back on newspaper history. Absolutely. Um, that's, that, uh, so yeah, hold on. Yeah, I've got a couple of books. Uh, well, okay, let me ask it now, and then we'll come back to the book, the actual content of the book. Okay. Um, when you get down into the late 50s, and uh, in particular, like 59, and then the election in 1860, mm -hmm. were the were the the were the owners and were the publisher and the and the staff of the B were they were they secessionists? At first, not so much. Now everything was kind of um, nuanced, or rather, um, you know, they were discreet in in how they presented, but. In fact, Louisiana was not hugely secessionist, particularly the sugar planters, because they wanted the tariff from the government, and they understood that a federal tariff was essential to maintaining the, the profitability of sugar plantations. So, um, in fact, a lot of the major Creoles were not secessionists. So the bee did not lean that way originally, but once secession occurred, they followed suit and they did so gotcha. with with veal and vigor and, right. and yeah because the stuff and again see i don't read the b but like to me the daily delta is mm -hmm. the that's the their fire and brims their fire oh, yeah. brimstone 
and get a rope for Lincoln, right? You know, I mean, yeah, they're they're all in. A little more discreet um, than that, okay. just because they recognize the nuances of it. But then once, it, it kind of was like Governor A.B. Roma, that, that great Creole governor, okay? He didn't really want to secede. He recognized that as a sugar planner, we needed to come to some kind of compromise for the federal tariff, protective tariff for the industry. But, and so he went to Washington and he tried to, you know, make a deal and see if we could compromise. But then when he came back and realized he couldn't, he became 100% on board with secession. The, the B was kind of like that. Um, okay. The so they were, no. they were following the community then. They weren't yeah. the, they weren't like yellow journalism where they were out front no. starting the rap, riling people up. Kind of no, I, not not so much. It was it was kind of okay. following what their readers were moving towards. Now gotcha. their press, okay. I believe, and I want to do more research into this. I didn't focus so much in this because my focus with this was the 1820s. But eventually, the press was confiscated during the Civil War, and so yeah, so it wasn't getting printed um, for a little bit there. But that was kind of a story. Do you think that's because Butler couldn't read French? <laughs> or like, I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm singling out because, you know, I, I got the, 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 the history groups on Facebook yes. and I, you know, I pull my hair out with Butler because, well, with people and Butler. Right. But do you think it's honestly, though, you got these guys and they're coming down from like New England in the middle sure. colonies. They don't know a lick of French other than maybe even menu French at that point. Right. So. So you think, is that why they, is that why they shut them down? Because they couldn't read what they were saying? No, I haven't thought about that, but that's a really good hypothesis in that they wouldn't be able to control the message or know what was being said. So that's, right. that deserves I more mean, you know, yeah. That definitely deserves gotcha. more. Yeah. Okay. That's, anyway, put it in that. We got, yeah. We'll, okay. we'll be talking about other things because you, you know, you know so much stuff. You know so much stuff that I don't know, you know, and I find fascinating. Well, I think so, vice versa. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. So be, I have something I want to talk about specifically in the book, but before I do, I have a question because now it becomes a two-part question because of what you were telling me about um, restoring Laura after the fire and then also this research. Um, were there things like, did you fall down when you were storing and finding things at Laura? Did you fall down rabbit holes and you find now you're not cleaning stuff up, but you're looking like, what the hell is this? And, you know, kind of, you know what I'm saying? You know, kind of yeah. just, you know, you um, find, yeah. And, and next thing you know, you, you have a, like almost half a day or something that you didn't do any work because you fell down a rabbit hole. You know, well, that, that would characterize more of my work with Laura later on would be, I became the historian for Laura. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, definitely. Because. The wonderful thing about Sand and Norman is that they're very passionate about telling the stories of individuals and you can get lost in that and you can really become obsessed yeah. on a trail of, I want to know what happened to this person and who was connected to these people. And they truly care uh -huh. about them. And it was exciting yeah. when I could tell Sand, look, I found this person's uncle or brother or look, they made the newspaper and this was what, and strangely, I mean, I'll say this about Laura, they are extraordinarily blessed with people who did amazing, interesting things over the course of 200 years who lived there. Lots of stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, definitely. And they are of all kinds of, oh, I'm, I'm so, I'm guilty of the rabbit hole. I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that, and that's where, okay. So 
that was that's part one of the question because when I was looking at the book and I'm saying, you know, it's like I knowing you, I could see that you're curating the content, you're curating the content of that first year with a focus on enslaved Africans, okay? Yeah. Which I absolutely, you see, I, I think, and this is a thing, and believe me, when I write a review of the book, it's, it's, this is, that's going to be the theme of the book, is that I, there is so much difference between, basically between the enslaved who live on plantations and, and the enslaved who live in the city, right? Because it's not, they're not farm labor in the city, so you know, and I, and, yeah, yeah and, and, and I think that's one of the things is that, to me, I, gosh, it, I don't want to say I didn't, I don't care about the farm side, you know, the agriculture side of things. I mean, I do. I'm fascinated that the sugar tariff thing is something now that now my brain is, you know, on is the wheels are turning about, you know, well, that, ex, that explains a lot about the indifference of Louisiana in secession. I didn't even think about that till just now. But anyway, the point is that the, the jobs, the things, the, the, the things that the enslaved did in the city, other, you know, other than maybe like riverfront dock work, you know, manual longshoreman type work with manual labor, which then, and even then the Irish and the Germans boxed them out of a lot of that, you know, boxed out. Well, besides it was easier to, you could sell the slaves to the plantations and make money and let the Irish unload the ships, you know, that kind of thing. But so, yeah. Okay. So, so I'm right. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah, it's just like, you, so you're curating the book geared towards the enslaved in New Orleans, which I find, I think anybody who's reading about that, this stuff should understand that slaves in the city, the slaves in the city were not going with the wind, you know, even, oh. and, you know, and, and, and forget the whole thing about going with the wind being a joke in terms of how slaves were treated, but it, the jobs were just different. Right. And, and I think that I like how, I, yeah, it's like, is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head about like the difference between being and being enslaved on a plantation and enslaved in the city that hits you? Well, access, access to, for example, a lot of what they talk about is this going to the circus, going to the sulfurous baths for your health, um, going to the the theater are different the uh, different entertainments they actually did have access to that and could do that if their owners their masters were willing and they had the funds which they would often pick up side jobs where they would make enough money to do things like that um the access to news I mean, we're talking about a newspaper. Here they are where multiple newspapers are being printed out in the country. They, they didn't have access to anything like that. And they may not have. So read I take it the well. literacy, the literacy yeah. level of slaves in the city would have been higher, obviously. It would have been higher. And even if they could not have read themselves, they would possibly have known someone who could. The gotcha. presence of free people of color also kind of. Um, influenced every all of that but you'll see um, descriptions of the enslaved doing all kinds of jobs in the city um, selling their wares selling merchandise was huge and people would rent out their slaves in the city to go work um, with people who were selling like at a bakery or um, you know, selling, uh, even in blacksmith shops, our stables. So it was, they were being rented out a lot. 
to, and they had a, a skill set. And they would often send their slaves out to sell their wares. And they had a degree of independence that they would not have had on the plantation. And just access to people, to, to a whole gotcha. community. It was broader. Is that where you hear stories like Rose Nicole, where you, you have uh, slaves that are able to moonlight to buy their freedom and yes. that kind of thing? So I would assume that basically that the city presented an infinite number of possibilities over the plantation at that point. Absolutely. Of the farm in terms of, gotcha. And okay. the other thing it provided, which you'll see in a lot of the runaway slave ads, is access to the port. And that was a whole other world. Oh, that's true, huh? Yes. Yeah. And not only did it give mm -hmm. them access to kind of a global network, and it made them see that the world is much broader than just the cane fields of Louisiana, it gave mm -hmm. them opportunities to run away. There was no underground railroad that stretched down here, but you had the steamboats and the the, the, the ships, and that's. I was going to say you you can yeah. jump a ship easily. Oh, yeah. absolutely, and, and that's why so, so well, yeah. many of the runaway ads say, "Attention, masters of vessels and steamships," right. mm -hmm. because right. you're certainly not going to go up through Mississippi to get away. Yeah, yeah if you can. So, Go to so Mexico. There were, so, right. Yeah. There were lots of laws. There were there were even laws pertaining to harboring um, slaves on vessels. So that was a huge opportunity for them. If they could get to the Caribbean, if, if they could get to yeah. Mexico. Yeah. Makes makes perfect sense. Okay, well that's fantastic. That, that, that background, I just I just love this. This is awesome. Okay, so what I want to do to, to kind of wrap this up, because we could keep talking all year oh, sure. on this, right? And, yeah, yeah, but and we will because we're going to do uh, we're going to talk about other things in other in mm -hmm. other pods. Um, I don't know if you have a copy of the book right handy, but one of the things that struck me completely, and if I can talk you into reading the first paragraph, or if you don't want to do it, I'll read it. But cause I don't know yet. But but the big thing is uh, Thursday, September twentieth, eighteen twenty-seven. Talking, and I love how they call it the obituary chapel, as opposed to because every. Everything yes. calls it the in English. It would be the mortuary chapel, right? And yes, and you know um, that was also my translation of it. Somebody may have interpreted it differently, but at the time when I was interpreting it, that that was what was coming up in my my wonderful French dictionary and ever, all the other resources. I okay, had. that's uh, that's but, fine. I I trust you. I trust your translation better than me or Google. So yeah, no, which I get that. It? Okay. It's uh, Thursday, 20 September, 1827. And this brings up one of the themes of all of these, uh, of, of what you see again and again in the newspapers, which is that New Orleans was the necropolis of the South. We were- Yeah, I love that term. Yes. That's yeah, it was just right. disease ridden. Disease impacted every aspect of life. Death right. was ever present. And really, it's a timely thing when we think about what we're going through today. Um, but New oh, Orleans, I know. It's, it's, yeah. So Thursday, 20th September. Okay, so, yeah, if you could read the first two paragraphs, you know, one okay. saw, and then it's a matter of, and, and if you could read those for us, I'd, I'd love that. Sure. So, um, one saw by the report of the last seating of the city council that Mr. Berth had presented a project of ordinance, which will be discussed next Saturday. 
It is surely a point of public health, which is of too great an interest for us to not particularly occupy ourselves with it. It's a matter of determining the usage of the obituary chapel that the cloth of the Catholic Church just made battle and which finds itself ended. The need of a police ordinance which prescribes to serve of worship and to citizens the mode to follow in the future for the transport of bodies. I just, thank you, and I just love the idea of the cloth of the Catholic Church just mm -hmm. made battle. That is, that's so New Orleans and we it don't, the, you don't hear that in Protestant speak, okay, yeah. is the way to say it, you know, and that's just magnificent. So, yeah, that's the, and, and I, I've fallen down way too many rabbit holes on what is now Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish yes. because of the Sicilians, right? You know, but mm -hmm. to see the talk of that church in a from a French perspective is something that I think, well, I, that's, isn't spoilers on the review of the, yeah, of the review of the book, but yeah, this is stuff that I think New Orleanians should read because we, you have people who say, oh, well, my family's Creole. Yeah. And they don't understand what that means, you know. No, they it, don't. Does it? No. And they, they just don't. And that's, you know, and it's that, um, what, just to, not to, God, not to poke this bear too much, but um, what's your position on the term Creole of color? I don't think it needs to be a term Creole of color, that we were all Creole. It, Creole means born in the colonies. It's a Portuguese and Spanish word that was then applied to slaves that were born in the colonies, as well as Europeans who were born here. Creole could serve as a description of slave that was born in Louisiana, as well as for, you know, a forche or um, a forestall or, you know, one of the Romans. Fair enough. I, I, I ask specifically because of when I wrote the jazz book, mm -hmm. you hear um, the, the, okay, uh, the, the, the jazz historians uh, uh, use, they use, they use the term Creole of color to make a clear distinction between that and then the Sicilian musicians in 1905 okay. to 1915. And you almost yeah, have to for understanding that. See, because yes. when, you, when you're okay. talking to a modern audience who does not understand these nuances, there has to be some kind of way to make a racial designation so they understand what you're talking about. That's where it gets tricky. It really does. It so, does, because, well, it's like, like I said, it's like, you know, uh, Rayburn and the people at, and, and the, 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 the Hogan Jazz Archive, all the, the folks at Tulane are, are, are very big on the distinction Creole of color. And then you've got McCusker who writes this, this wonderful biography of Kid Ori and names it Creole trombone. Not Creole of, not black guy or anything. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, because Dutt was from Laplace, you know, I mean, he's, right. oh, I you know, he that. lived on, he was, yeah, he was a sharecropper. He was from a sharecropper family right up in, well, closer in than your research, you know, no, the, the no, deep actually, of your research. Um, he came, uh, Kid Ori grew up a few miles from the plantation that was owned by my fourth great grandmother. So yeah. Um, oh my no, goodness. I'm, okay. I'm very familiar. Yeah. The, I know all about okay. St. Parish. Yeah. Um, okay, and, cool. Okay. 
And there was a well, huge that, amount yeah. of, of Creoles um, who came from there who, who started bands and who went to New Orleans. That, that's absolutely true. Um, but one of the things you brought up, which it's, it's true, if you read over, one of the reasons why I decided, you know what, I have this, this research just sitting and it's not doing anybody any good. Let me put it out there and for people to either enjoy or to use in their own scholarship is that there are so many parts of it that are relevant to today that still resonate, oh, gosh, yes. still explain. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're talking about carnival and the whole development of Mardi Gras. You can trace that throughout there. You can see just how important issues with women were and domestic violence issues and issues of race and brutality. And, you know, we have people still trying to defend slavery when you can see that in every single issue of the B, it proves that slavery was based on violence and systems of brutality. So that's the beauty of reading a primary source like this. It, you cannot deny it. It's the voices right. speaking to you from the past. And the disease. Well, that's these issues yeah. and the oh. issues of crime. I mean, talk about yeah. just m murders and stabbings and shootings and duels. And, you know, we think New Orleans has a crime problem now. It always had a crime problem. So it, I love that part of it, too. Yeah. But like I said, I think the big thing was, you know, uh, well, we're, we're both raised Catholic and, you know. Yes. I've got that. I've got that. That common connection with Robin, as you know, of a certain location on Elysian Fields Avenue. Yes, that, you know, my husband Robin. Actually, yeah. Yes, thank you. I let you say it. Yes, hi Robin. Yes, we're talking about. We're taking your name in vain, but um, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, well, you know, but and and I wrote, you know, I wrote a book on on the brothers, and of course, the brothers of Sacred Heart come from Nice and Marseille, yes. so they are very. You know, from the beginning, they are the more, like I said, I just, that, that, that whole thing, and, and calling it the obituary chapel, I think that's wonderful. I'm going to start doing that because oh. it's like, mortuary chapel just sounds so, ugh, you know, it's like, what are you, cutting up bodies in there or something? You know what I mean? It's right, like, and well, the way they saw it, it was as protection, both in a hygienic sense, but also in an right. emotional sense because they, the examples that they cite for establishing this separate chapel for the dead were for people who were grieving and going to mass and trying to pray and being daily right. confronted with these reminders of their losses. Because honestly, if you lived in New Orleans in 1828, you had lost someone either to disease or you know some kind mm -hmm. of childbirth issue or even a duel or yeah. um, oh, a murder. Yeah. So loss and death were everywhere, and they created this place to kind of try to cushion it for some worshipers in the cathedral. I, 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 I absolutely buy that, because you know how in modern times now we have this incredible trend of uh, somebody passes away and you do all the way up to, you don't just, you don't just wake them at the funeral home, mm -hmm. but you actually do the funeral at the funeral home. Yes. And I, you know, and I'm like, it's more than mere convenience. It's the same thing. It's like, you don't want to have to go back to Our Lady of the whatever. And every time you walk in the church, you see your, you know, Mama sees Papa laid out in the front, right? But the odds of how often are you going to go back to, I mean, it's like even Shane on Canal built that huge chapel to expand oh. this out because it's become 
uh, thing, right? You know, right. and I, I totally, I, that's, I just love, a bitch. I, this is, it's like, you know how you get the one thing out of a book that you walk away and say, well, I got one thing, so I just justified yeah. the cost of the book, you know, yeah. it's like, that's a, that's a bitchery capital for well, me. Well, and the so. interesting thing is okay. they're always pointing that out as being, well, it was because it was close to the cemetery. In that article, you don't see anything about it being in proximity to the cemetery. You see it as being... No, it's... What was it? Okay, the one thing, um, the working out with the city, uh, the, the mode to follow in the future for transport of bodies. And that has nothing to do... I mean, it doesn't point out that you're transporting the body next to the cemetery. It just says... We we want to get these we want to get these bodies out of you know it's like we don't know how this disease is transmitted so we want right. them out of the you know, yeah that and that yeah oh, like I said I just yeah I'm gonna write about this because oh. I just love that article but well, okay so, so to wrap this up oh yeah I know this is just so, so much fun for me but so to wrap this up tell me your favorite rabbit hole from 1827 1828 what. Oh. What prolonged the production of the book because you, or what, what's, your, what's your favorite story or thing out of all of the stuff, if you can pick one? It's probably nerdy, okay? I'm not going to lie. Um, it, gave, <laughs> it gave me insight into the larger body of work that I do, which is that the most slave sales that were ever, ever seen in Louisiana occurred between 1828 and 1831. Now, why is that? It's because the slave trade was closed in 1826 due to things like Nat Turner's rebellion and not wanting to sell these rebellious insurrectionist slaves down south, okay? And we protect our slaves from those, those bad ones up in Virginia. It lasted all of two years. The sugar planters were dying for labor. They were, um, you know, petitioning the government. They, they needed labor. They needed slaves. So in 1828, you, you see in the newspaper the whole progression and the debate of this about reopening it and why reopen the slave trade. And you see how the decision was made that the domestic slave trade now needs to be reopened. And the repercussions for our country as a whole with that, New Orleans became the largest slave market in North America. And this was a pivotal right. time. 1828 was like the deciding year. And if they had gone the other way, I, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened, but they didn't. They said, we're going to reopen it. And so 2,000 to 4,000 slaves were sold per year between 1828 and 1831. And it forever changed our culture and our landscape. And, um, you know, I, I see it not only in a large perspective, like what the book shows, but in a more individualized perspective in terms of the research that I've done, because I will tell you literally every plantation that I have worked for, I have seen a massive upsurge of slave purchases in 1829. And I always wondered why 1829. And now I know. So that make that makes perfect sense oh fantastic okay so the um the the title of the book of course is the new orleans bee dispatches from the first year of louisiana's longest running french language newspaper and you got that really cool little ad from the bee oldest paper in the southwest you gotta love when new orleans is the southwest anyway yes. and it is compiled by katie morla shannon which is you and i thank you so very much for coming on the pod. It's been a pleasure to, to have you and uh, 
I have loved oh, talking great. to okay. someone who isn't my husband who has to just endure it. You enjoy it. <laughs> I, I love it. And hopefully, well, I, I guarantee you that, that, you know, it's like yeah, other people, we, you will hear from people, trust me, especially. Well, it's a fun yeah, read. We'll, we'll, we'll take I, care of that. I think it's a fun read. I think it's interesting. It paints a portrait, almost Dickensian life. You go back in time, you know? Yeah, it really is just so cool. Katie, thanks so much for being with us, and I appreciate you your, your time for this because this is really great, and I hope we help you sell a whole bunch of books. Oh, you are so kind. Good. Thank yes. you. <laughs> All right, and thanks so much. And that's the pod for this week. Uh, I failed to note uh, mention, and again, I apologize for this. Uh, uh, apologize for the for the the sound quality on my end uh, from the uh from the interview with katie katie's fine because she was just you know she, she had it nailed but the audio on my end i used uh we we used we zoomed to do this and zoom is kind of neat in that respect because you can do uh you, you can it when when you're done if you record a zoom session you can it it pushes both the the video like in an mp4 file but it also sends you an audio only file and that was neat i did not realize the echo was so bad because when i zoom i usually do so from our kitchen where the sunlight and the daylight coming in from the porch and everything if a patio is better but i realized the echo is horrible and i apologize we'll, we'll fix that i'll do it here in my in my office uh next time because well it's we're only going going for uh we're, we're only going for the uh, for the audio so you know you, you'll, you'll hear it again with ryan uh you know when we do his uh present his interviews but you get the idea it was kind of yeah, that was kind of gross on my part but anyway it was still a fun time it was a great interview and uh and uh we'll uh, continue this uh do do you know we'll talk more with katie and we'll be talking to a whole bunch of other people because you know once i get the kinks out of the audio for for zoom uh it's a very good medium for this because it puts people at ease they don't have to go we don't have to to connect in person to do this as fun as that is but right now well that's another thing so wear your mask wash your hands use your hand sanitizer go have fun and we'll keep uh, keep on keeping on with you all. Talking about, talking about, y'all take care of the people. We're talking about.